Hello and welcome to China Econ Talk. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider. Chinese law. What is it good for? Well, many things, but protecting Huawei from state security requests to help in overseas espionage? Probably not, according to this week's guest, Don Clark, professor of law at George Washington University. That's due to fundamental aspects of Chinese law that we'll discuss today. Don, welcome to China Econ Talk. Uh, thanks very much, Jordan. Happy to be here. So first off, what got and kept you interested in Chinese law? And what sort of advantages or disadvantages do you feel between studying this sort of law and the types of stuff that your colleagues do um, focusing on Western countries? Uh, I was first in China from 77 to uh, 79 as a student. And uh, while browsing around in the Canadian embassy library one day, uh, I came across one of the founding works in the field of PRC law. This is a book by Jerome Cohen called The Criminal Process in the People's Republic of China. It covered the period up to the Cultural Revolution. Of course, uh, there wasn't much in writing, and as an American, he couldn't go to China, so he went to Hong Kong and interviewed lots of PRC immigrants, including not just ordinary citizens, but also legal officials. And they had fascinating stories to tell, and he wrote about it in a really interesting way. So that's what got me interested. What kept me interested was just the tremendous changes we've seen uh, in China since the late 1970s. How could anyone be other than interested? As for um, the advantages of studying Chinese law compared with studying U.S. law, uh, I guess one advantage is lots more opportunities to travel and uh, meet interesting people, not just in China, but also in the community of uh, Chinese law scholars outside of China. Uh, if you're a specialist in some aspect of U.S. law in the U.S., my guess is that you don't interact a lot with foreigners who study the same aspects of U.S. law. But if you're a specialist in Chinese law, you interact not just with Chinese legal scholars, but also scholars from all different countries who also study Chinese law. Second advantage, lots more open areas. There's still lots of basic stuff about the Chinese legal system uh, that we don't know. And then I guess another uh, advantage is more opportunities to be cross-disciplinary. Uh, when you study Chinese law, it's immediately obvious that you can't just look at doctrine. Uh, you also have to talk about politics, society, economics, um, throw in some anthropology, all sorts of, uh, you know, other interesting fields um, that you can throw into the mix. What do Chinese scholars think about foreigners studying their legal system? What is the kind of general tenor of the uh, relationship between the foreign and domestic academic spheres? Uh, in my experience, uh, Chinese legal scholars, regardless of their views or political orientation, are actually remarkably welcoming of the efforts of non-Chinese studying their legal system. They read the work and they take it seriously. They have symposia to discuss works by non-Chinese scholars. You hear a lot of government officials saying that uh, you know non-Chinese just don't understand China, but I don't hear that from Chinese scholars about non-Chinese scholars of China. And uh, I think the respect definitely goes both ways. I remember back in the 80s uh, when I started reading Chinese legal journals, it's fair to say that uh, it wasn't very good. A lot of doctrinal exegeses, basically 
uh, taking the text of some written law that was 50 words long uh, and then explaining it in more detail in 500 words. But that was an era when the written law mattered even less than today and nobody was looking at actual practice. Now the picture today is totally different. Uh, you know, there are still a few people doing the boring textual analysis, but there are many more who are widely read in the international literature, in a bunch of different disciplines, uh, not just law, and who are doing uh, really very interesting empirical investigations. There are just a lot of very bright and interesting people in the field now, and that again is what makes it a fun field to be in. What are the downsides of studying a, a foreign country, and particularly the PRC's legal system? Well, I guess one downside is you're more likely to be at least somewhat marginal in your home institution when you're studying a foreign legal system and not the U.S. legal system. Another downside, it's harder to do research, uh, particularly in China, since the system is in principle closed, whereas the U.S. legal system uh, is in principle open. But this is a huge problem, uh, not just for foreigners, although it's especially big for foreigners. Uh, Chinese face similar problems, uh, although they can be overcome to a certain extent. Uh, for example, uh, Chinese researchers, given enough time, can get judges to open up to them, can regularly re observe uh, court proceedings, uh, and perhaps can even have access to court records of various kinds. Now, this is impossible for non-Chinese scholars. So, uh, you know, you have to choose your research subject with care to make sure it's something doable by someone who cannot get this kind of close insider look at uh, how courts operate. Another point is, another difference uh, is you can hope to have some kind of policy relevance if you're studying U.S. law and legal scholarship in the U.S. can be explicitly about advocacy. Uh, for example, uh, you can write an article setting forth your view about some aspect of the law of search and seizure and hope that maybe judges or at least litigators and professors will read it and that your ideas perhaps somehow will seep into the jurisprudence in the field. Well, that's not going to happen when you write about Chinese law. Scholars of Chinese law outside of China are not generally in the business of making arguments about what Chinese law ought to be, except perhaps as part of some incidental advocacy um, in, say, human rights. Uh, we're generally much more in the business of just trying to understand how the system operates. Let's start in pre-PRC, pre-Republican uh, era China. So what aspects of traditional Chinese law are important to note? And maybe talk a little bit about how uh, Qing era stuff bleeds down into, into the present. Uh, well, there are a few important points about traditional Chinese law that I'd like to make about how it was different from the contemporary legal systems of Europe. So unlike the legal systems of Europe, Chinese law does not trace its roots to uh, the private law system of Rome or to any religious basis. Uh, instead, traditional Chinese law during the imperial period centered on state concerns and dealt with private matters incidentally. So consider your uh, typical medieval European monarch. These monarchs held themselves out as providers of justice, uh, and they sought legitimacy on those grounds. They set up courts to encourage people uh, to use their courts and not use the courts of the feudal lords. But, uh, you know, in China, doing justice as such, uh, I would say, was simply not part of a traditional Chinese ruler's job description. Keeping order was his job. So far from encouraging subjects to bring their disputes to state officials for resolution according to law, 
uh, imperial officials from the emperor on down uh, would encourage subjects to settle things amongst themselves and not disturb their betters. The second thing uh, is that although imperial China, which of course had a very advanced bureaucracy, uh, produced a great deal of documents of a kind of rule-like character, um, it had very few officials with the specialized function of interpreting and applying those rules. Uh, and their role was limited to the review of cases where a non-state actor was involved as a defendant. So basically we're talking criminal type cases. Uh, there wasn't any institution that could apply law against the state. And uh, below the level of the province, there were actually no legally specialized officials in legally specialized institutions. That is to say, nothing you could call a judge or a court. Um, there was a local official in charge of a county whose title is traditionally translated as district magistrate, but uh, I think that's very misleading, and so I prefer to call him the district superintendent. Um, his responsibilities covered all aspects of government within his jurisdiction, uh, tax collecting, abandoned suppression, uh, you know, maintenance of post horses, things like that, and also, incidentally, cases of violations of the law. Uh, he had an office called the Yaman, that's sometimes translated as court, but again, that's misleading. Uh, hearing disputes was just part of his overall job uh, as an administrator. And, um, you know, what's the relevance to the present, you asked? Well, a lot of these ideas can be seen even now. Um, I, I won't go into detail, but, but in particular, I guess I would point to the relatively subordinate role of law. Um, again, it's viewed as a part of overall government administration and uh, uh, things we might think of as legal institutions, that is courts and judges, you know, their job is really to function as administrators and as part of the overall uh, task of administration. Uh, there is absolutely no acceptance of the idea of limited government or government uh, under law, as we might say. The law is for the ruled, uh, it's not for the rulers. Sure. So let's um, fast forward then to 1912, and we have Republican China. Mm. So what new stuff gets thrown into the mix at this point in time? Well, at this point, I guess what we get in Republican China uh, is a few things. Uh, first of all, we now do get these special uh, differentiated institutions uh, that can handle matters that are specifically designated as legal. So we do get this kind of separation out from the ordinary business of government of this special set of tasks that are called legal and that you know require the attention of people who have specific uh, legal training. Um, another very important element we get in Republican China, of course, is the ideology of popular sovereignty, uh, that legitimacy comes from the people. Um, this is, of course, not the case in traditional China. Uh, the emperor doesn't get legitimacy because he's elected. Uh, it doesn't get legitimacy because the people support him. He gets uh, legitimacy from you know the mandate of heaven. Um, now, of course, this idea of popular sovereignty was somewhat diluted in that the uh, you know the ruling party, uh, the Kuomintang, sometimes translated KMT, uh, like the Communist Party after it, uh, sees itself. Uh, as the or saw itself as the vanguard of the people, so the people didn't necessarily get a direct uh, choice, but uh, nevertheless, that ideology uh, is important. Uh, and then uh, finally, uh, another kind of new thing we get is this notion of rights. Although it's important to uh, remember that rights here were largely conceived of as good 
because of what they would do to strengthen the state. In other words, you know, even in the, the late Qing, when uh, Chinese thinkers were, you know, casting around for uh, solutions to China's problems. You know, why is China able to be bullied around by this tiny little island country, you know, called uh, England? And uh, so they would say, well, what is it that makes the Europeans powerful? And one of the things they came up with was, oh, it's, it's this institution of rights and constitutional government. And so, you know, Chinese thinkers in this particular, you know, moment in Chinese history when China was, uh, you know, weak and under attack from European powers, of course, one of their main concerns was how do we make China strong? It wasn't, you know, what do we do that's good for the citizens? It's how do we make China strong? And so rights, this concept of rights was imported at this particular time. Um, and so that's typically uh, how rights were uh, conceived of uh, in that era and, and even, you know, today to a certain extent. So they're not valuable in themselves, but they're valuable for what they will do for society. So a few things happen between 1912 and 1949, but uh, let's get ourselves to the, to the Mao era. So what, what happens uh, with, uh, with Mao Jussi on the, on the helm? Well, so if we think about uh, the, the Mao era, I guess I'll call that, you know, the era of classical socialism. We start off, of course, with quite a lot of instability and unrest. You know, even in 49, uh, the Communist Party had, you know, basically conquered the mainland, but they still had a lot of sweeping up to do, at least in their, in their own view. So, uh, you know, that is followed by land reform, which was quite bloody. And economically, you know, they wanted to follow the Soviet Union in having a planned economy. Uh, it's important to realize that the planned economy, you know, in China was never remotely, uh, you know, as planned as the Soviet economy. You know, when the Soviet economy was planning for, you know, 10,000, you know, 20,000 items, China was planning for, you know, a few hundred, something like that. But the point is that in such an economy, um, you know, a, a judicial system uh, is either not really necessary or it does something quite different. So the judicial system as we know it is designed to resolve disputes among equals, you know, based on rules known beforehand. And that's just not what the Mao era legal system was all about. So if, if you think about the economy as a kind of giant China incorporated, uh, everything is done according to uh, a plan. Uh, if you look at General Motors, for example, and uh, the processes governing how resources move around inside General Motors, uh, you know, how are disagreements between employees or between employees and supervisors resolved? Um, if the Chevrolet division wants more money to develop their cars and the Cadillac division wants more money to develop their cars, how do you resolve these policy differences? You know, none of that looks like a legal system. It's an internal bureaucratic system, and the goal is not justice. Uh, the goal is maximization of profits through the production of cars. So I think that's a that, that's a decent model for thinking about the legal system in the Mao era. You know, it's not inherently, uh, you know, good or bad. It's just you have to remember what it's trying to do, and uh, what it's trying to do is is not to deliver justice. What it's trying to do is to maximize some particular goal of the whole system. Let's get to Deng Xiaoping and Gaga Kaifeng. And as the economy changes, you write that the need for a different type of rule of law increases. Uh, yeah, because it used to be, again, if you, if you think about the legal system as similar to what 
you might get in, in a giant corporation or a giant bureaucracy like a university or even within a government, typically when you have disagreements, they're resolved by a common superior. So you have to find who is the, you know, who's the boss of both the disagreeing parties, uh, and then they both make their representations to that common superior, and the common superior decides. Um, what do you do if people don't have a common superior? You know, if if you and I have a dispute, we don't have any kind of common bureaucratic superior um, that can resolve the dispute for us. And in a market economy, if you have a lot of uh, private entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, private enterprises, just individuals uh, not controlled by the state, not under the state, uh, making their own individual decisions about things. So they don't have a common superior. So therefore, you know, you have to have some different mechanism for uh, governing their disputes. And that mechanism is, uh, you know, the legal system as we as we tend to think of it. Um, so given the, uh, the, you know, the nature of economic reform, uh, the growing importance of uh, the market where people are supposed to be making individual decisions about what they want to buy and what they want to sell and at what price, uh, the growing prominence of actors in that market who are not subject to a common superior, um, then uh, you know you needed to have a fundamentally different system. And so the role of the courts, for example, changed quite a bit. You know, in the Mao era, uh, courts used to basically, you know, what did they do? They... Um, they put their seal of approval on criminal decisions that had been made elsewhere. Uh, they handled matters such as, you know, uh, divorce, uh, things like that. But they did not handle cases involving massive amounts of resources, you know, huge amounts of money. Uh, all of a sudden, in the uh, post-Mao era, you know, they were being called upon to handle these kinds of cases, uh, civil cases that would involve perhaps mass, massive amounts of money. And so you need, you know, a different system to do that. Um, so, so looking back, I mean, it's it's pretty unbelievable just how much uh, progress has been made in this regard. Yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of change. I'm, I'm a bit uncomfortable um, talking. Sure, in progress terms of may pro be the wrong word. Um, evolution. Progress. Progress. In, right. So let me explain here because I don't, I, d I don't, my my feeling is not you can't talk about it, but I think one needs to separate out the time when you can talk about it and when you can't. Um, so, you know, I mean, I've used those terms myself. It's very difficult to avoid using those terms. But, you know, talking about progress and regress does imply that there's some kind of a line uh, along which uh, all legal systems develop. And the kind of system we like is at one end, and then what we don't like is at the other end. And And so what I see often in... Uh, you know, the Chinese law world or the world of Chinese law scholarship or people looking at Chinese law is this kind of constant looking for hopeful signs, you know, that something we like yeah. is developing. And I think that can really distort our understanding because, you know, we interpret everything through this lens of whether it might be the seed of something that could grow into something we like. So, you know, village elections, wow, sprouts of democracy, you know, or activist lawyers, well, this is the nascent independent bar. And, and it means that we don't contemplate the possibility that what we're looking at is really part of something else entirely, or maybe it's just a one-off um, that won't grow into anything. Now, you know, there's nothing wrong with talking about progress and regress if you have a, you know, and because you could explicitly have a set of values as a goal. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with talking about progress toward those values. People should have values. But... Uh, what I want to caution against is seeing that valued endpoint as somehow inherent 
in the internal logic of the way the system is developing. You know, it, that's, it's, it's, a, it's a goal you are hoping for, but it's not necessarily a goal that the system has. Let's get into that then. So what are the fundamental points that the system is aiming around that people don't necessarily maybe appreciate from a casual Western lens? Uh, yeah, so I, I guess I would say that the goal of the system now, even explicitly and in the past, perhaps implicitly, is, uh, you know, can be summed up in two words, which is stability maintenance, you know, in, in Chinese way one. You know, we hear this phrase um, a lot and... Uh, it's it's not because we hear it as a buzzword that I'm saying it's the goal of the system, but it it seems to me that when one looks at how the system, uh, you know, actually operates, that that is what is driving it uh, more than anything else. And and by stability maintenance, I mean uh, stability maintenance as viewed by the party, which means you know that which maximizes the chances of the Chinese Communist Party staying in power. And then that has many subsidiary policy goals. Uh, for example, keeping petitioners, you know, out of Beijing, uh, for example. So, uh, you know, we see local officials having these, you know, hard targets that no more than X number of petitioners from their district can show up in Beijing. And if they do, you know, the local official is going to get in trouble. They have to, you know, repress demonstrations and, and stuff like that in their own districts. Otherwise, uh, they're going to get in trouble. We find courts, uh, for example, ju- you know, one of the indexes on which uh, judges are evaluated is the extent to which, you know, their decisions result in some kind of mass protest or incident of what the party would call social instability. Nobody's asking whether the decision was right or wrong. You know, mm. that's not what the, that's not what the superior official wants to know. The superior official wants to know, you know, why is someone having a hunger strike on the steps of the court, you know, and attracting a big crowd? Uh, yeah. I don't want that happening. Make this stop happening. That's the imperative for local officials. It's to make, you know, these incidents of instability go away. Uh, and it's not necessarily, you know, the, the superior official is not that concerned with the rights and wrongs of the matter. That's just not on the on the assessment table. So you write that a few of the central tensions in the Chinese legal system are local versus central, the idea of judicial independence and which rules end up ruling. Could you talk about those a little bit? Uh, sure. So the first tension, uh, local versus central, is about how much discretion local governments uh, should have and do have. So, you know, China, constitutionally speaking and, you know, politically speaking, is a unitary state. It's not a federal state like Canada or the United States. Uh, local governments have no protected sphere of uh, power and authority. So, in other words, uh, legally speaking, and to a certain extent politically speaking, whatever the central government wants, it gets, and the only limitation on that is simply one of, uh, you know, what is the actual power of the central government to do something? Because, of course, you know, they're up in Beijing, and there's always a kind of asymmetry of information. You know, local officials know more about what's going on locally than central officials do. Um, because local officials are not, you know, elected by the people below them, 
who are in a pretty good position to know what the local officials are doing and how well they're doing it, uh, but instead selected by people above them, um, you know, this problem is, uh, is never going to go away. So the, the higher up officials always have this problem of not knowing exactly what the lower level uh, officials uh, are doing. So although they have the uh, theoretical power and when they really devote resources and attention to it, the actual power to, uh, you know, sort of to make any particular thing happen at the local level, you know, as a general matter, they have to delegate a lot to uh, local governments. And so that is, is a constant source of, of tension in the system that the central government wants to get certain things done, but it has to leave, you know, a certain amount of authority as a practical matter to local governments. On the other hand, sometimes it works to the center's advantage because they can avoid the blame for certain policies. Yeah. Um, if only, if only Mao knew what um, uh, what right. was going on in the in the it, provinces, right? Exactly, and and a lot of people, you know, in China, you know really do think like this. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, survey evidence to show that, you know, people have, um, you know, much more uh, trust in the central government uh, than they do in their local governments. There have been some interesting survey evidence about petitioners when they go to Beijing and, you know, sort of they get surveyed, you know, the day they arrive and what their views of the central government are the day they arrive. And then they get surveyed by the same people like a week later. And what are their views of the central government? And, you know, it's really gone downhill in that week. But they arrive full of faith that the center will solve their problems. And it's just the evil local officials that have been hiding the truth. Uh, from the center, so that's that's sure. one uh, that's one tension there. Um, I've al- the I've always of- found it interesting how you know that's just like that's a legacy that you see in like Song Dai and uh, and Ming Dai. I mean, it's 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 uh, uh, it's it's an interesting tradition that's 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 carried on until the twenty first century. Well, and not just in China, you know. I mean, it was famous in in Russia that the uh, uh, you know the peasants and, and and perhaps the workers would think that if only Stalin knew, you know what was yeah. what was what was being done so i think it's probably inherent in any kind of centralized uh, dictatorship so so judicial independence on to judicial independence right so so the issue there is how do you uh, this is not an issue unique to china right but the issue there is how do you get the kind of optimum mix of independence on the one hand and accountability on the other because of course total independence means total non-accountability and, uh, you know, in the United States, for example, we go to one extreme, uh, you know, the system prizes independence, even at the expense of uh, accountability. If you look at the federal uh, system, you know, the really the the almost the only way to really make a judge accountable is to impeach them. And that's a very, you know, difficult process, almost never done. Judges, you know, at particular levels, maybe can be, you know, criticized or or you know, disciplined. I think I don't know even how the system works, but we did not. Out. There's, 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 well, there's not much that we do to make federal judges accountable. We just hope that you know, having gone through the confirmation process, that you know, we'll have the right people. Um, but you know, not every country would choose that extreme, and uh, you know, China doesn't uh, choose that extreme. So, so just even as a theoretical matter, there's not an obvious answer to how to make uh, how to you know, have this optimum mix of accountability and independence. Uh, and then part of the question is, well, independence from whom? And and that is a big issue in China because clearly there's no intention on anybody's part 
in China, at least not on the part of anybody who counts, to have judges independent from, you know, whatever the Communist Party leadership might think. But there's a real issue as to the degree to which uh, they should be independent from local governments. And uh, the problem there is that judges are appointed, judges at any given administrative level uh, are appointed um, through a process which is essentially controlled by the party organization at that same administrative level. Um, so a uh, county judge uh, would be appointed through a process controlled by the uh, party organization uh, at, that, at the county level. A judge in a provincial court would be appointed through a process controlled by the you know, party organization at the uh, provincial level. And also the funding for the court is controlled at the same uh, administrative level. So uh, what that means is that if a judge uh, you know, is receiving conflicting instructions, one from you know, the powers that be at the same administrative level and one from, for example, a superior court, you know, they're going to follow the instructions from someone at the same uh, administrative level. And, uh, and that's you know, troublesome because uh, what they should be doing, uh, even you know, within the Chinese system, is to be following their best interpretation of what the law, which was passed at the central level, says. Because, of course, uh, as I mentioned, China being a unitary state where all power is at the center, local governments do not have the legal power or you know, really uh, political or ideological authority to override what the center says. And so judges should be trying to do what the center uh, tells them to do through its you know, duly promulgated legislation uh, and not yeah. doing whatever local officials tell them to do. But in fact, the way the system is structured, they have uh, really every incentive to do what uh, local political power is telling them to do. Yeah, you write that the, the PRC rejects the notion of a vertical separation of powers and also rejects the notion of a horizontal separation of powers between different branches of government. For example, the traditional troika of legislative, executive and judicial branches. A necessary separation of functions is acknowledged, but constitutionally speaking, the, the NPC, the National People's Congress and former legislature sits at the apex of China's political power structure. But in reality, that position is occupied by the Standing Committee of the Politburo of the Chinese Communist Party. But both form and reality share the rejection of multiple power centers. And this ends up bleeding down all the way into um, questions of, of judicial independence at the, uh, you know, at the local level. Yes, I would agree totally with that. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so. You wrote it. Okay. Um, right. so, uh, so lastly, which rules rule? Okay, so this is again this this actually goes back to the issue of uh, local versus central, uh, you know, which rules promulgated by whom, uh, you know, is it promulgated by local governments, promulgated by which branch of local government, uh, you know, promulgated by the center, is it the National People's Congress, is it the State Council? Um, this can be, uh, you know, extremely confusing, and there is a law in China called the Law on Legislation which actually sets forth the kind of order of priority that different laws come in and says that laws of kind of a lower level cannot contradict laws of a higher level. But then the question is, uh, you know, if you're a judge faced with contradictory laws, uh, you know, what do you actually do, especially given that it's the, the lower level law 
is more likely to be the one issued by the level of government that is in charge of you. Uh, mm-hmm. And there was very there was a very interesting case on this several years ago called the the seed. Uh, the seed law case. And this involves a case where it had to be decided on the basis of one of two contradictory laws. And one of the laws was passed by the Provincial People's Congress and one was passed by the National People's Congress. And the judge in her decision said that she would apply the law of the National People's Congress because it uh, you know the law of the uh, local people's congress contradicted it and and she said therefore it was automatically you know, for that reason invalid and that created this huge stir uh even though she was simply applying the, the you know the the provision of the uh, uh law and legislation which said clearly you know chinese political system also endorses this concept that local governments cannot override uh, the central government. Uh, what happened? Uh, she, th- this decision, incidentally, was was not just her going out on a limb. There was a special body within the court called the Adjudication Commission uh, Committee, which consists of all the senior judges in the court, uh, the court president, who's going to be a politically connected, savvy person. Uh, they all approved of this decision, but nevertheless, it, it caused this huge fuss. The judge was disciplined. Um, uh, interestingly. The case um, then uh, was, um, uh, you know, appealed up to the provincial level court, which came to the same result. It just did not use the inflammatory words to say that the local legislation was was invalid. Uh, it didn't apply it. So <laughs> in substance, it made it invalid and it applied the central legislation. So they did exact they came to exactly the same result. But just a little more uh, Mienza they, for everyone. They, exactly. They were just uh, just hit the ball as to what they were doing rather than saying up front uh, what they were doing. So uh, this problem comes up a lot, uh, this idea, this, this notion of uh, uh, conflicting rules. And it's still uh, something of a problem in that, you know, in practice, Chinese law seems to be a bit of an inverted pyramid in which the laws that are actually most important are the lower level ones as, and not the higher level ones, whereas in theory, uh, you know, the, the laws that are most important are the higher ones and not the lower level ones. So how does she want the legal system to evolve? And what has he been doing in his time as Tok Dog to push it in that direction? That's an interesting question. I don't think Xi Jinping has any particularly profound thoughts about the legal system. My guess is that to him, there's nothing special about the legal system. It's just another set of administrative institutions through which to realize his policy goals. So, for example, uh, you know, are the police, uh, are the Ministry of State Security, are they part of the legal system? You know, it's not an important question. So they're they're just like the courts; they're all part of a state administration uh, that operates in a similar fashion uh, across the board. So I think, as far as she is concerned, and I'm pretty sure other leaders would think the same way, the slogan "strengthening the legal system" means getting more people to obey orders more faithfully. There's absolutely no sign whatsoever that she or any other leader has any desire or intention to establish uh, some set of non-party institutions that could act as a check upon the party, as an institution, uh, or upon a party leader. You know, what they want to tell you is the party will supervise itself. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, no need for citizens uh, to get involved. 
So coming back to the uh, the topic I promised 40 minutes ago, uh, Huawei and and the legal system. So the central uh, claim or the line that Huawei was putting out, I guess, uh, back a month ago was uh, basically saying that they have the wherewithal under Chinese law to say no to requests by um, by the government to help with uh, with overseas espionage. Why don't you take it from there and maybe connect what you wrote to some of the uh, uh, some of the things we've been we've been talking about with with regards to fundamental aspects of what's going on legally in China? Okay, so there's two issues here. Uh, one is what is the position under Chinese law? So if a Chinese government agent you know walks into Huawei's offices and says you must cooperate. And and let's not single out Huawei here. Just any any company operating in China, including a foreign-owned company. You know what is the position under Chinese law? So you know that's an interesting question, but it's not the only question, uh, and it's not even the most important question. The most important question is what is the reality, regardless of what Chinese law says. So you know, in other words, does Chinese law matter in this case? So I guess uh, let me talk about the position under Chinese law first. Uh, and then I'll talk about uh, the reality, if that order makes sense. Sure. So many people have uh, raised the issue of China's, you know, national intelligence law, which basically says uh, that you know citizens and entities, you know, have a duty to cooperate. And uh, you know, what does this mean? And you know, Huawei last uh, spring started circulating a, a legal opinion by a Chinese law firm called uh, Zhonglun, which analyzed the position under Chinese law, the national intelligence law, and other statutes, and concluded that Huawei did not have uh, an obligation. I read that opinion very closely and, frankly, was not impressed by its uh, reasoning, particularly with respect to uh, the national intelligence law. I think in some of the other laws, they were correct to say that those laws do not oblige Huawei or any other company to cooperate. But the arguments against the national intelligence law, I thought, were were pretty weak. For example, the uh, legal opinion circulated by Huawei stated that the national intelligence law protects the lawful rights and interests of Chinese companies and that Huawei had a lawful right and interest in doing business overseas and that if it were forced to install back doors or something in its equipment, that would compromise its lawful right and interest in doing business overseas and therefore Huawei could say no. Now, I I find Mm -hmm. that argument preposterous, frankly, uh, that anything so vague as, uh, and and in Chinese law, one sees this all the time, lawful rights and interests, it really doesn't mean very much, that, you know, such a, a vague provision could be elevated into this, you know, great wall of resistance to Chinese government requests to uh, cooperate. You know, another argument they said was that it would be unconstitutional because the Chinese constitution protects the rights of privacy of citizens, uh, which strikes me as equally preposterous uh, for a number of reasons, including the fact that, of course, the concern is not the privacy of Chinese citizens. The concern is the privacy, etc., of foreign citizens who, of course, are not protected under the Chinese constitution. So my feeling is really, is this the best argument you can come up with uh, mm-hmm. to, to say that, you know, the national intelligence law does not 
oblige Chinese citizens to cooperate. And, and if that's the best you can do, I have to say I'm I'm not convinced. So so the position under Chinese law, I think, is that they they do need to cooperate. Then the question is, what about reality? And I think the question uh, of what the reality is 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 even clearer. China, uh, you know, is is in effect a, a Leninist state. They do not recognize legal limitations on the power of government to do what it wants to do. When the government agent comes into, you know, the offices of a Chinese company, whether it's Huawei now or whether it's Yahoo China many years ago, in in a famous case, uh, and says, you know, do this, you know, you cannot say, well, the law says we don't have to, so we'd rather not, at which point the government agent says, okay, no problem, just asking, have a nice day. That's not how it works. When the government agent comes into your office and says, you must do this, you have to do it. And it doesn't matter what Chinese law says because the government is not meaningfully constrained by uh, Chinese law. You write that the need to distinguish between the formal system and what actually happens is very important. Such a gap, of course, is, in, is present in some degree in all countries, but in many areas it is particularly broad in China. And I would imagine that uh, uh, international espionage is certainly one of those areas. So national security-related issues is, is uh, one of those areas. So just take an example, um, uh, you know, the uh, detentions in uh, Xinjiang. So we have at least it seems a million, you know, possibly uh, well over that. So we're talking about at least 10% of the entire Uyghur population being detained in Xinjiang, utterly outside Chinese law. There is not any justification in Chinese law for these that anybody has offered. Uh, I have not found it. Uh, I have, you know, asked Chinese legal experts. Nobody can come up with a explanation under Chinese law about how this can be done. It's always, well, it's necessary, but it's not, well, it's legal, you know. So here we have, uh, you know, a, a, a giant set of exceptions uh, to the, the government operating uh, under law. That's just one example. We have, of course, many more, but I just offer that as an example. You wrote this paper, which which ended up causing quite a stir a month ago. Maybe talk a little bit about the um, uh, the reaction and you know how it seeped into the press and the response. Okay, so the the paper uh, you're talking about, I, I assume, is the one on Huawei's uh, alleged employee ownership. Uh, so this is a paper that uh, I wrote together with uh, Christopher Balding. Actually, it was uh, Chris's uh, inspiration to write the paper, and I came along a little later in the process. Um, uh, you know, in which we. Uh, argued, uh, I guess I would say, in which we demonstrated <laughs> that Huawei's employee ownership is not quite so straightforward as it seems that what Huawei employees uh, have at, at most is is something called virtual shares. It's a kind of contractual right, but we see it as a kind of a profit-sharing scheme. And, um, uh, you know, the, the actual owner of Huawei Technologies is another company called Huawei Investment and Holding Company. Uh, that owns Huawei Technologies 100%. Uh, Huawei Investment and Holding Company has two shareholders. Uh, 1% shareholder is Ren Zhengfei, the founder of the company, and then 99% is owned by this uh, kind of somewhat mysterious entity called the Huawei Investment and Holding Company Trade Union Committee. And uh, um, which, 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 among many things, organizes uh, uh, Yumaochiu competitions. Well, apparently that's what they say they do. So, any, but that's 
So, so, you know, really the key to understanding Huawei, at least at a formal level, is understanding how this, you know, alleged trade union committee uh, works and and makes decisions. But uh, I I guess I was a little surprised at the reaction. I mean, the the paper did cause uh, quite a stir. It was downloaded, you know, like a thousand times in the first 24 hours after being posted uh, online. Uh, Huawei, uh, you know, called a press conference, denounced us by name. But the thing is that, you know, contrary to almost all academics uh, in their work, uh, Chris and I, uh, at least speaking only for myself, maybe I shouldn't speak for Chris, but we take pride in the fact that this paper says absolutely nothing new or original. Uh, and what do I mean by that? <laughs> that if you if you Google uh, – so, so our key argument is that what the Huawei employees own is not kind of real shares, but it's virtual shares, which are kind of contractual rights. And, and if you Google uh, – the Chinese terms for Huawei, uh, together with the Chinese term for virtual shares, you've got like three and a half million hits. I, I did a comparable search in the English language literature, just preceding the publication uh, or the publicity given our paper, uh, looking in uh, the uh, Nexus database uh, for any item which contained the words Huawei and also the term virtual shares. And I got one hit. One hit uh, from about 2012, which was an article that mentioned in passing that uh, some employees of a Indian subsidiary of Huawei had been given a virtual share. So that's it. So this whole idea of uh, virtual shares in, in Huawei held by Huawei employees seems to have been completely unknown in the English-speaking world, even though it was utterly commonplace. Everybody knew about it. Uh, and they weren't even – it wasn't the secret, you know, in the Chinese uh, language world. I mean, we, we – uh, you know, I, I ran across a court case in which Huawei, you know, sends a letter to the court explaining its, you know, virtual shareholding system. Uh, and so I was – I didn't realize that it was so little known, I guess, in the uh, English-speaking world. And I was surprised that Huawei was so vehement about kind of – you know, denouncing what we said when uh, I guess their differences with us maybe are in interpretation, but certainly in the basic facts, uh, you know, we didn't say anything that hasn't been said a million times before. I mean, literally millions of times before in, in <laughs> Chinese Chinese language media. Do you want to proffer a guess as to why uh, they were so sensitive to your uh, critique, I guess? I don't know. Uh, maybe because it was made in English? Well, in, in a sense, For you know, we were saying that the system of employee ownership was at the very least not so clear as Huawei was making it out to be. Um, uh, you know, uh, Chris and I, I think, have somewhat different views on how far we want to go with an affirmative view of what's going on at Huawei as opposed to a view of what's not going on at Huawei. Um, mm. We also, you know, uh, pointed out that if it's really owned by a union and if uh, if, if you know 99% of the shares of Huawei holding so Huawei investment and holding company are really owned by a union um, then that means that there's you know a very significant element of state control because you know unions in China are not independent they're uh, kind of quasi state bodies uh, and indeed if any particular union goes up uh, 
uh, you know, gets gets liquidated, that is, uh, uh, dissolved. And where do its assets go? They do not go to the members of the union. They go upwards to the interesting, uh, you know, union body at the next highest administrative uh, level. So that raises this interesting question of, well, you know, what happens to these? Obviously, the the trade union committee is not going to, you know dissolved or liquidated anytime soon but it was it's just kind of an interesting thought experiment to see you know who has kind of ultimate uh, ownership or interest in these shares and that's still somewhat uh, mysterious uh, so in closing don any advice uh, for students out there interested in learning more about chinese law what they should read tips for getting into legal chinese um, and then maybe going from learning to le- legal Chinese to actually understanding how the real law works? Sure. Well, uh, Chinese is hard, but legal Chinese is not that hard. Uh, it, it's hmm. not especially harder than Chinese. So, you know, I teach U.S. corporations law as well as Chinese law. And I feel truly sorry for uh, the non-native speakers, uh, actually the native speakers as well, uh, who have to wade their way through the thickets of the Delaware statute on corporations. You know, it, it's a nightmare. You have sentences mm that go on for like half a page, all in legalese. Um, Legal Chinese is not like that. It's not a nightmare uh, because uh, by and large, it's not written by lawyers and it's not intended to be closely parsed by legally trained judges. So the way to learn legal Chinese is basically just to read a lot of documents of the type you want to learn to read. Uh, Academic articles, legislation, contracts, to learn legal Chinese in the sense of uh, learning how to express <clears throat> non-Chinese legal concepts in Chinese. You know, how do you translate a piece of U.S. legislation into Chinese? How do you translate a contract that's written, you know, for, uh, you know, Americans and American courts? How do you translate that into Chinese? Probably the best way is to look at the filings of Chinese companies listing on the Chinese stock, uh, sorry, on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, because often their disclosure documents will be in both languages. And those documents might include key contracts, you know, corporate charters, things like that. Uh, those translations are very carefully done. They put a lot of money into getting those right. So the translations are usually quite good. And thus, comparing the English and the Chinese can be very helpful uh, for learning. But uh, you know, learning legal Chinese, if there is such a thing, doesn't tell you anything about how the system works, um, except to the extent uh, that uh, you know what I said before, which is that learning legal Chinese to express Chinese legal concepts isn't that hard. That already tells you something uh, about the system. Um, Interesting. So for for understanding how the system works, uh, I guess the best thing to do is if you're a student at an institution where a Chinese law course is offered, take the course. But if you can't do that, I have a few recommendations. Uh, First of all, you have to understand how the political system works uh, and the role of the Communist Party, because you just cannot separate the Chinese legal system from the political system. So, for example, as I mentioned, this um, uh, legal opinion about Huawei's obligations under Chinese law, uh, you know, is is substantially incomplete because even if everything it said about Chinese law was accurate, that would not answer the question that really matters, which is, uh, you know, what are the actual obligations and to what extent, you know, does the legal system count? Uh, It's a subdivision of the political system. So, you know, read up on that.
there are there are now quite a number of uh, good books and articles being written on various aspects of the Chinese legal system. Uh, I would actually still recommend Jerome Cohen's book that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast on the criminal process in the PRC, the one that I read so many years ago, even though it's quite old now. I looked at it again recently, and it's quite interesting to see how many continuities um, there actually are. If you're interested in, you know, criminal law and criminal procedure, which is, you know, a big part of the system, there's a, a more recent book in 2011. It's quite well done based on a lot of field work and interviews called Criminal Justice in China, colon, and Empirical Inquiry. And uh, on that subject, that's, uh, I think, a quite a well done book. Um, there's one recent book that I would single out as one that I think everyone with any interest in the Chinese legal system, and even just maybe the Chinese political system, uh, you know, must read by uh, Kwai Hang Eng, K-W-A-I-H-A-N-G, last name N-G, and uh, another, co his co-author, Xin He, X-I-N, surname H-E, which is called Embedded Courts, colon, Judicial Decision-Making in China. Uh, I just love this book. It's based on a lot of field work and interviews by the two authors over the last several years. And it's both uh, theoretically sophisticated and full of, you know, great anecdotes and quotes from their interviews. It gives you this great feel, I think, for how courts operate. You know, of course, courts are not the whole legal system. Uh, and there's a lot more to it than that. But the courts are still pretty important. And so understanding how they operate uh, is important. Finally, um, I would give a shout out to the China Law blog, which is about uh, and it just Googled the words China Law Blog, which is about legal aspects of doing business in China from the standpoint of lawyers in a kind of a small boutique firm that deals with a lot of smaller clients and not one of the giant New York firms that deals only with uh, big multinationals. Um, I like their perspective because I think it gives you a much truer feel for what uh, everyday law is like in China. Go back to episode 47 for, uh, for Dan Harris's uh, oh, okay. rubber duckies and semiconductors. Right. Well, great. Because, you know, the big multinationals, you know, they don't get treated the same way as everyone else. Uh, I remember being astonished, you know, several years ago, the CEO of Coca-Cola Company, I forget his name, said that China had a better environment for business than the United States. Okay, so maybe if you're a giant multinational, you know, you go to China, you meet the top leaders, you can negotiate your own special deal. But, you know, for a typical small company, I mean, you have to if, if you want to move your main office from one district in Beijing to another district, you know, you have to get special permission, jump through all kinds of hoops. That's just one example. But the point is, uh, you know, I think the small company kind of small investor perspective gives you a much more realistic view of what's going on in China. And so I find that uh, that blog very interesting. Don Clark, thanks for being a part of China Econ Talk. My pleasure. Glad to chat with you. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shine, 
下的障碍。一晃来晃去怎么办？你选择偷单，整理好心情，再踩起油门。欲望的心意，耀眼的星星，时尚的记忆，搭配什么看我的心情